Section 12 of The Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Paul Johnson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1, Section 12. Selections from the History of the United States by Henry Adams. What the War of 1812 Demonstrated From the History of the United States, 1890 A people whose chief trait was antipathy to war, and to any system organized with military energy, could scarcely develop great results in national administration, yet the Americans prided themselves chiefly on their political capacity. Even the war did not undeceive them, although the incapacity brought into evidence by the war was undisputed, and was most remarkable among the communities which believed themselves to be most gifted with political sagacity, Virginia and Massachusetts by turns admitted failure in dealing with issues so simple that the newest societies, like Tennessee and Ohio, understood them by instinct. That incapacity in national politics should appear as a leading trait in American character was unexpected by Americans, but might naturally result from their conditions. The better test of American character was not political but social, and was to be found not in the government but in the people. The sixteen years of Jefferson and Madison's rule furnished international tests of popular intelligence upon which Americans could depend. The ocean was the only open field for competition among nations. Americans enjoyed there no natural or artificial advantages over Englishmen, Frenchmen, or Spaniards. Indeed, all these countries possessed navies, resources, and experience greater than were to be found in the United States. Yet the Americans developed, in the course of twenty years, a surprising degree of skill in naval affairs. The evidence of their success was to be found nowhere so complete as the avowals of Englishmen, who knew best the history of naval progress. The American invention of the fast-sailing schooner, or clipper, was the more remarkable, because— of all the American inventions, this alone sprang from direct competition with Europe. During ten centuries of struggle the nations of Europe had labored to obtain superiority over each other in ship construction, yet Americans instantly made improvements which gave them superiority, and which Europeans were unable immediately to imitate even after seeing them. Not only were American vessels better in model, faster in sailing, easier and quicker in handling, and more economical in working than the European, but they were also better equipped. The English complained as a grievance that the Americans adopted new and unwarranted devices in naval warfare, that their vessels were heavier and better constructed, and their missiles of unusual shape and improper use. The Americans resorted to expedients that had not been tried before, and excited a mixture of irritation and respect in the English service until, quote, Yankee smartness, end quote, became a national misdemeanor. The English admitted themselves to be slow to change their habits, but the French were both quick and scientific. Yet Americans did on the ocean what the French, under strong inducements, failed to do. The French privateer preyed upon British commerce for twenty years without seriously injuring it, but no sooner did the American privateer sail from French ports that the rates of insurance doubled in London, 
and an outcry for protection arose among English shippers, which the Admiralty could not calm. The British newspapers were filled with assertions that the American cruiser was the superior of any vessel of its class, and threatened to overthrow England's supremacy on the ocean. Another test of relative intelligence was furnished by the battles at sea. Instantly, after the loss of the Guerriere, the English discovered and complained that American gunnery was superior to their own. They explained their inferiority by the length of time that had elapsed since their navy had found on the ocean an enemy to fight. Every vestige of hostile fleets had been swept away, until, after the Battle of Trafalgar, British frigates ceased practice with their guns. Doubtless the British navy had become somewhat careless in the absence of a dangerous enemy, but Englishmen were themselves aware that some other cause may have affected their losses. Nothing showed that Nelson's line of battleships, frigates, or sloops were, as a rule, better fought than the Macedonian and Java, the Avon and Reindeer. Sir Howard Douglas, the chief authority on the subject, attempted in vain to explain British reverses by the deterioration of British gunnery. His analysis showed only that American gunnery was extraordinarily good. Of all vessels, the sloop of war, on account of its smallness, its quick motion, and its more accurate armament of thirty-two-pound carronades, offered the best test of relative gunnery and Sir Howard Douglas, in commenting upon the destruction of the Peacock and Avon, could only say, quote, In these two actions it is clear that the fire of the British vessels was thrown too high, and that the ordnance of their opponents were expressly and carefully aimed at and took effect chiefly in the hull. The Battle of Hornet and Penguin, as well as those of Reindeer and Avon, showed that the excellence of American gunnery continued till the close of the war, whether at point-blank range or at long-distance practice, the Americans used guns as they had never been used at sea before. None of the reports of former British victories showed that the British fire had been more destructive at any previous time than in 1812, and no report of any commander since the British Navy existed showed so much damage inflicted on an opponent in so short a time as was proved to have been inflicted on themselves by the reports of British commanders in the American War. The strongest proof of American superiority was given by the best British officers, like Broke, who strained every nerve to maintain inequality with American gunnery, so instantaneous and energetic was the effort that, according to the British historian of the war, quote, a British forty-six-gun frigate of 1813 was half as effective again as the British forty-six-gun frigate of 1812, end quote. And, as he justly said, quote, the slaughtered crews and the shattered hulks, end quote, of the captured British ships proved that no want of their old fighting qualities accounted for their repeated and almost habitual mortifications. Unwilling as the English were to admit the superior skill of Americans on the ocean, they did not hesitate to admit it in certain respects on land. The American rifle, in American hands, was affirmed to have no equal in the world. This admission could scarcely be withheld after the lists of killed and wounded which followed almost every battle, but the admission served to check a wider inquiry. In truth, the rifle played but a small part in the war. Winchester's men at the River Raisin may have owed their overconfidence, as the British 41st owed its losses to that weapon, 
and at New Orleans five or six hundred of Coffee's men, who were out of range, were armed with the rifle, but the surprising losses of the British were commonly due to artillery and musketry fire. At New Orleans the artillery was chiefly engaged. The artillery battle of January 1st, according to British accounts, amply proved the superiority of American gunnery on that occasion, which was probably the fairest test during the war. The battle of January 8th was also chiefly an artillery battle. The main British column never arrived within fair musket range. Pakenham was killed by a grape-shot, and the main column of his troops halted more than one hundred yards from the parapet. The best test of British and American military qualities, both for men and weapons, was Scott's Battle of Chippewa. Nothing intervened to throw a doubt over the fairness of the trial. Two parallel lines of regular soldiers, practically equal in numbers, armed with similar weapons, moved in close order toward each other across a wide open plain, without cover or advantage of position, stopping at intervals to load and fire, until one line broke and retired. At the same time, two three-gun batteries, the British being the heavier, maintained a steady fire from positions opposite each other. According to the reports, the two infantry lines in the center never came nearer than eighty yards. Major General Rail reported that then, owing to severe losses, his troops broke and could not be rallied. Comparison of official reports showed that the British lost in killed and wounded four hundred and sixty-nine men the americans two hundred and ninety-six some doubts always affect the returns of wounded because the severity of the wound cannot be known but dead men tell their own tale rail reported one hundred and forty-eight killed scott reported sixty-one the severity of the losses showed that the battle was sharply contested and proved the personal bravery of both armies marksmanship decided the result and the returns proved that the American fire was superior to that of the British in the proportion of more than fifty per cent, if estimated by the entire loss, and of two hundred and forty-two to one hundred if estimated by the deaths alone. The conclusion seemed incredible, but it was supported by the results of the naval battles. The Americans showed superiority amounting in some cases to twice the efficiency of their enemies in the use of weapons. The best French critic of the naval war, Jurien de la Gravière, said, quote, An enormous superiority in the rapidity and precision of their fire can alone explain the difference in the losses sustained by the combatants. End quote. So far from denying this conclusion, the British press constantly alleged it, and the British officers complained of it. The discovery caused great surprise, and in both British services much attention was at once directed to improvement in artillery and musketry. Nothing could exceed the frankness with which Englishmen avowed their inferiority. According to Sir Francis Head, quote, Gunnery was in naval warfare in the extraordinary state of ignorance we have just described, when our lean children, the American people, taught us, rod in hand, our first lesson in the art, end quote. The English textbook on naval gunnery, written by Major General Sir Howard Douglas immediately after the peace, devoted more attention to the short American war than to all the battles of Napoleon, and began by admitting that Great Britain had, quote, entered with too great confidence on a war with a marine much more expert than that of any of our European enemies, end quote. The admission appeared, quote, objectionable, end quote, even to the author, but he did not add, what was equally true, that it applied as well to the land as to the sea service. No one questioned the bravery of the British forces, 
or the ease with which they often routed larger bodies of militia, but the losses they inflicted were rarely as great as those they suffered. Even at Bladensburg, where they met little resistance, their loss was several times greater than that of the Americans. At Plattsburg, where the intelligence and quickness of Macdonough and his men alone won the victory, his ships were in effect stationary batteries, and enjoyed the same superiority in gunnery. Quote, the Saratoga, end quote, said his official report, quote, had fifty-five round a shot in her hull. The Confiance, one hundred and five. The enemy's shot passed principally just over our heads, as there was not twenty whole hammocks in the nettings at the close of the action, end quote. The greater skill of the Americans was not due to special training, for the British service was better trained in gunnery, as in everything else, than the motley armies and fleets that fought at New Orleans and on the lakes. Critics constantly said that every American had learned from his childhood the use of the rifle, but he certainly had not learned to use cannon in shooting birds or hunting deer, and he knew less than the Englishman about the handling of artillery and muskets. The same intelligence that selected the rifle and the long pivot gun for favorite weapons was shown in handling the carronade and every other instrument, however clumsy. Another significant result of the war was the sudden development of scientific engineering in the United States. This branch of the military service owed its efficiency and almost its existence to the military school at West Point, established in 1802. The school was first much neglected by the government. The number of graduates before the year 1812 was very small, but at the outbreak of the war the Corps of Engineers was already efficient. Its chief was Colonel Joseph Gardner Swift of Massachusetts, the first graduate of the academy. Colonel Swift planned the defenses of New York Harbor. The lieutenant colonel, in 1812, was Walker Keith Armistead of Virginia, the third graduate, who planned the defenses of Norfolk. Major William McRae of North Carolina became chief engineer to General Brown and constructed the fortifications at Fort Erie, which cost the British General Gordon Drummond the loss of half his army, besides the mortification of defeat. Captain Eleazar Derby Wood of New York constructed Fort Meigs, which enabled Harrison to defeat the attack of Proctor in May 1813. Captain Joseph Gilbert Trotton of New York was chief engineer to General Izzard at Plattsburg, where he directed the fortifications that stopped the advance of Prevost's great army. None of the works constructed by a graduate of West Point was captured by the enemy, and had an engineer been employed at Washington by Armstrong and Widener, the city would have been easily saved. Perhaps without exaggeration, the West Point Academy might be said to have decided, next to the Navy, the result of the war. The works at New Orleans were simple in character, and as far as they were due to engineering skill, were directed by Major Latour, a Frenchman. But the war was already ended when the Battle of New Orleans was fought. During the critical campaign of 1814, the West Point engineers doubled the capacity of the little American army for resistance, and introduced a new scientific character into American life. The Battle Between the Constitution and the Guerriere From the History of the United States, 1890 as Broke's squadron swept along the coast, it seized whatever it met, and on July 16th caught one of President Jefferson's sixteen-gun brigs, the Nautilus. The next day it came on a richer prize. The American Navy seemed ready to outstrip the army in the race for disaster. The Constitution, the best frigate in the United States service, sailed into the midst of Broke's five ships. Captain Isaac Hull, in the command of the Constitution, had been detained at Annapolis, shipping a new crew until July 5th. 
the day when Broke's squadron left Halifax. Then the ship got under way and stood down Chesapeake Bay on her voyage to New York. The wind was ahead and very light. Not until July 10th did the ship anchor off Cape Henry Lighthouse, and not till sunrise of July 12th did she stand to the eastward and northward. Light head winds and a strong current delayed her progress until July 17th, when, at two o'clock in the afternoon, off Barnegat on the New Jersey coast, the lookout at the masthead discovered four sails to the northward, and two hours later a fifth sail to the northeast. Hull took them for Rogers' squadron. The wind was light, and Hull, being to windward, determined to speak the nearest vessel, the last to come in sight. The afternoon passed without bringing the ships together, and at ten o'clock in the evening, finding the nearest ship could not answer the night signal, Hull decided to lose no time in escaping. Then followed one of the most exciting and sustained chases recorded in naval history. At daybreak the next morning, one British frigate was astern with five or six miles, two more were to leeward, and the rest of the fleet some ten miles astern, all making chase. Hull put out his boats to tow the Constitution, Broke summoned the boats of the squadron to tow the Shannon. Hull then bent all his spare rope to the cables, dropped a small anchor half a mile ahead, in twenty-six fathoms of water, and warped his ship along. Broke quickly imitated the device, and slowly gained on the chase. The guerriere crept so near Hull's lee-beam as to open fire, but her shot fell short. Fortunately the wind, though slight, favoured Hull. All night the British and American crews toiled on, and when morning came, the Belvedere, proving to be the best sailor, got in advance of her consorts working two kedge anchors, until at two o'clock in the afternoon she tried in her turn to reach the Constitution, with her bow-guns, but in vain. Hull expected capture, but the Belvedere could not approach nearer without bringing her boats under the Constitution's stern guns, and the wearied crews toiled on, towing and kedging, the ships barely out of gunshot, till another morning came. The breeze, though still light, then allowed Hull to take in his boats. The Belvedere being two and a half miles in his wake, the Shannon three and a half miles on his lee, and the three other frigates well to the leeward. The wind freshened, and the Constitution drew ahead, until, toward seven o'clock in the evening of July 19th, a heavy rain squall struck the ship, and by taking skilful advantage of it, Hull left the Belvedere and Shannon far astern. Yet until eight o'clock the next morning they were still in sight, keeping up the chase. Perhaps nothing during the war tested American seamanship more thoroughly than these three days of combined skill and endurance in the face of the irresistible enemy. The result showed that Hull and the Constitution had nothing to fear in these respects. There remained the question whether the superiority extended to his guns, and such was the contempt of the British naval officers for American ships, that with this expedience before their eyes they still believed one of their thirty-eight-gun frigates to be more than a match for an American forty-four, although the American, besides the heavier armament, had proved his capacity to outsail and outmaneuver the Englishman. Both parties became more eager than ever for the test. For once even the Federalists of New England felt their blood stir, for their own president and their own votes had called these frigates into existence, and a victory won by the Constitution which had been built by their hands was in their eyes a greater victory over their political opponents than over the British. 
With no half-hearted spirit, the sea-going Bostonians showered well-weighted praises on Hull when his ship entered Boston Harbor, July 26th, after its narrow escape, and when he sailed again, New England waited with keen interest to learn his fate. Hull could not expect to keep command of the Constitution. Bainbridge was much his senior, and had the right to preference in active service. Bainbridge then held, and was ordered to retain command of the Constellation fitting out at the Washington Navy Yard. But Secretary Hamilton, July 28th, ordered him to take command also of the Constitution on her arrival in port. Doubtless Hull expected this change, and probably the expectation induced him to risk a dangerous experiment, for, without bringing his ship to the Charleston Navy Yard, but remaining in her outer harbor, after obtaining such supplies as he needed, August 2nd, he set sail without orders, and stood to the eastward. Having reached Cape Race without meeting an enemy, he turned southward, until, on the night of August 18th, he spoke a privateer, which told him of a British frigate near at hand. Following the privateersman's directions, the Constitution the next day, August 19th, 1812, at two o'clock in the afternoon, latitude 41 degrees, 42 minutes, longitude 55 degrees, 48 minutes, sighted the Guerriere. The meeting was welcome on both sides. Only three days before, Captain Dakers had entered on the log of a merchantman a challenge to any American frigate to meet him off Sandy Hook. Not only had the Guerriere for a long time been extremely offensive to every seafaring American, but the mistake which caused the little belt to suffer so seriously for the misfortune of being taken for the Guerriere had caused a corresponding feeling of anger in the officers of the British frigate. The meeting of August 19th had the character of a preconcerted duel. The wind was blowing fresh from the northwest, with the sea running high. Dakers backed his main topsail and waited. Hull shortened sail, and ran down before the wind. For about an hour the two ships wore and wore again, trying to get advantage of position, until, at last, a few minutes before six o'clock, they came together side by side, within pistol-shot, the wind almost astern, and running before it. They pounded each other with all their strength, as rapidly as the guns could be worked. The Constitution poured in broadside after broadside, double-shotted with round and grape, and without exaggeration the echo of these guns startled the world. Quote, in less than thirty minutes from the time we got alongside of the enemy, reported Hull, she was left without a spare standing, and the hull cut to pieces in such a manner as to make it difficult to keep her above water. End quote. That Dacres should have been defeated was not surprising. That he should have expected to win was an example of British arrogance that explained and excused the war. The length of the Constitution was 173 feet. That of the Guerriere was 156 feet. The extreme breadth of the Constitution was 44 feet. That of the Guerriere was 40 feet, or within a few inches in both cases. The Constitution carried 32 long 24-pounders, the Guerriere, thirty long eighteen-pounders, and two long twelve-pounders. The Constitution carried twenty thirty-two-pound carronades, the Guerriere sixteen. In every respect, and in proportion of ten to seven, the Constitution was the better ship. Her crew was more numerous in proportion of ten to six. Dakers knew this very nearly as well as it was known to Hull, yet he sought a duel. What he did not know was that in a still greater proportion, the American officers and crew were better and more intelligent seamen than the British, 
and that their passionate wish to repay old scores gave them extraordinary energy. So much greater was the moral superiority than the physical, that while the guerrière's force counted as seven against ten, her losses counted as though her force were only two against ten. Dacre's error cost him dear, for among the guerrière's crew of two hundred and seventy-two, seventy-nine were killed or wounded, and the ship was injured beyond saving before Dacre's realized his mistake, although he needed only thirty minutes of close fighting for the purpose. He never fully understood the causes of his defeat, and never excused it by pleading, as he might have done, the great superiority of his enemy. Hull took his prisoners on board the Constitution, and, after blowing up the Guerriere, sailed for Boston, where he arrived on the morning of August 30th. The Sunday silence of the Puritan city broke into excitement as the news passed through the quiet streets that the Constitution was below in the outer harbor, with Dacres and his crew prisoners on board. No experience of history ever went into the heart of New England more directly than this victory, so peculiarly its own, but the delight was not confined to New England, and extreme though it seemed, it was still not extravagant. For however small the affair might appear on the general scale of the world's battles, it raised the United States in one half-hour to the rank of a first-class power in the world. End of section 12